Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by Francesca Trotman, a marine biologist as well as the managing director and founder of Love the Oceans. Francesca, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Alrighty, so as we can probably tell from the name of your organization, Love the Oceans, today's theme is going to be around ocean conservation, but specifically around the region of Mozambique, because that's where you do your work out of. Um, but before we dive into that, pun intended, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? Uh, yeah, sure. No worries. So yeah, my name is Francesca and I run Love the Oceans. So uh, we basically do loads of different research areas and community outreach. And we have the mission of establishing a marine protected area in Changamo, uh in Mozambique, which is in the Indian Ban province, uh, which is where I'm currently speaking to you from. And yeah, we do fisheries research, humpback whales, coral reefs, ocean trash, uh, megafauna. So whale sharks, manta rays, humpback whales. I'm sure I'm forgetting <laughs> something. I always forget one of them. Um, we do two community outreach projects to teaching swimming and basic marine resource management. So uh, we pride ourselves on a holistic approach. So we do, yeah, a bunch of different work. <laughs> a bunch of different work. All right. Can we rewind and can you perhaps tell a bit of a story behind the beginnings of this organization? Like how did this organization come to be? Yeah, definitely. So uh, it depends how far back you want to go. <laughs> um, let's go. Let's go back to even before the conceptualization of this organization. Like, have you always been into the ocean? Like, was there a point in your life where there was a like a click moment where you're like, okay, I want to work with the ocean somehow? Let's go back to to that point. Yeah. So I've I've been one of those lucky people that kind of always knew that what I wanted to do. So my mum took me to the London Aquarium when I was eight years old for my eighth birthday and I was pressed up against the shark tank like a weird little kid. <laughs> and um, one of the guys that was cleaning the tank, because sharks shed their teeth, he got one of the teeth that had been shed off the floor and he put it into a little box and I kept it for like five years so I feel like that was a big indicator for me that I really like sharks um and then I yeah learned to dive when I was 13 I watched loads of David Attenborough so yeah I think there was like all the like classic stuff like I read all the books watched all the movies uh like all the I remember watching End of the Line before I went to university. That was really influential uh, in terms of like my research on fisheries and things like that. But then, yeah, I came to uni and marine biology just seemed like the way to go because I wasn't really interested in much else. Uh, then did a underwater photography internship in Mozambique because I do underwater photography as a second job. And... Yeah, and then when I was here, because that was in 2013, when I was here, I first saw my first shark killing, and I was really upset by it. Like I'd seen, I'd read loads about um, the shark fin trade and and watched loads of movies and all the rest of it, but obviously it's completely different seeing 
animals killed right in front of me. Uh, so I was like really emotional about it. And well, I spent like three days really angry <laughs> at the Fair fishermen. Um, yeah. But then I realized that the reason that the fishermen were catching the sharks was for the fin trade. And they were just kind of like the middlemen. They're just trying to feed their families. It's just a means to an end. They're not evil people or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I then wanted to work out how bad that trade was in the area because obviously it's bad if those sharks are being killed, but it's worse if it's happening on a regular basis and a larger scale and all the rest of it. So um went back to university. I did an integrated master's, which is it's basically in the UK, you don't have to like reapply for your master's year. You just do it straight off your bachelor's. So it's like four years, you don't have to reapply. It's cheaper and easier. And so... Yeah, I went back into, must have been my third year at that point, uh, recruited a few research assistants. And then at the end of my third year, in like the summer, I came out to Mozambique for like four months and spent four months with the shark fishermen here uh, with my research assistants, learning about like the, the fin trade and what was going on, really. Um, and then went back into my master's year, wrote my master's thesis on the shark fin trade. Well, the Elasman Bank trade, actually which is sharks, rose and skates, but I actually focus mainly on sharks uh, and aging the sharks using their vertebrae um, and looking at the sustainability of the shark fin trade, uh, which obviously all the results were saying that it wasn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't get my stats significant because I didn't have enough data. So, and I didn't feel like it was something that I could just like walk away from and continue living my life knowing that this thing was going on. So I decided to found the organization initially just to continue my data collection. But then the more I read about successful conservation and and that kind of thing, I realized that long lasting change and culturally integrated change comes from multi pronged approaches, working with people and the local community, working with the government. And so changed the mission from just stopping the shark fin trade to establishing a marine protected area as a whole in this region, because that will sure stop the shark fin trade, but also protect habitats, provide income, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I, I like the holistic approach. I mean, that's we should be thinking about all these problems that we're facing in the world from a holistic point of view, especially ones around conservation that are intrinsically very complex. And I like how you talked about the fishermen as being like the middlemen. I've recorded a podcast recently around the illegal wildlife trade and often the poachers cop all the criticism when in fact they're just a pawn in the bigger game. Like the ones that are really deserving of our criticism are the, I guess, the kingpins at at the top that run and manipulate this this trade. So you you, yeah. you you said you went in your third year, I believe, of university. You went back to Mozambique and you spent some time with the shark finning fishermen there. Can you talk a bit about that experience and if perhaps a couple of things that you learnt from being there with them for a few months? Oh, that's that's a question I haven't been asked before. Um, it's a good one. Um, there was language barriers, so I picked up Portuguese pretty quickly um, and conversational and learned that being a woman was an advantage because women have very little value in this society which meant that I could get really close to the sharks and take my samples without the fishermen feeling threatened because you weren't like a competitor you weren't competition yeah no well they just didn't believe that a woman could do anything or stop them or anything like that so they didn't really 
care. They just and all my research assistants happened to be women as well. So we didn't have any problems with sample collection. But the moment because I had a friend visit me that year while I was out and he came along to take some photos and, you know, document what we were doing because he works in kind of the journal industry. Just being a dude like they didn't they didn't want him coming close to the sharks or anything. So, yeah, I learned about that, like, weird advantage. Um, and, yeah, I learned, well, the science part of it. I learned a lot more about, like, I saw so many more shark dissections, which obviously was, like, horrific, but also scientifically pretty interesting because you don't really get that kind of thing in a lab anymore. I learned about, yeah, where the fins go, so who they go to, and the fact that, yeah, the shark fishermen are just the middlemen. So the fins go off into Yunban to be sold on and then are basically shipped off out of Mozambique to Hong Kong. And the fishermen get paid like a fraction of the price that they go for on the market. So they really are just the middlemen. Then I also learned that our local community consumes the meat. So there's actually a difference between shark killing and shark finning. And actually most of what we have here is shark killing. So that's basically shark finnings when the bodies are discarded overboard. Shark killing is when the bodies are landed. And we have more shark killing than we have finning. We do have finning as well, because if so many sharks are caught that they can't fit them all on the boat, then they'll take the fins off and discard the bodies. But usually they'll try and land the whole shark because they'll basically fillet it. It literally looks like tuna once it's filleted and all the rest of it. And that opened up a new area of research, which we're trying to get permits for at the moment, because sharks are high up the food web, so their tissues accumulate mercury. So if the local community are consuming a, like a large amount of shark meat, especially pregnant women and young children, then that can have serious detrimental effects to their health care, so their health with stunted growth, blindness, cerebral palsy. Like there's loads and loads of results of eating too much mercury. It's why all of our tuna tins have like a daily allowance on daily recommended amount because of the mercury levels in it. Um, and sharks are the same. They have very high mercury levels. Yeah, like basically learn about possible spin-off projects off that and learn that, yeah, sharks are a source of income. So to stop people fishing sharks, you've got to provide them with an alternative source of income um, that's reliable and all the rest of it. Uh, which is kind of why our holistic approach was born, because it's about thinking and learning about barriers that stand in people's way and then trying to erase those barriers so they can live more sustainably. And I think like I definitely became and I am still now like as a kid, I was obsessed with these animals. Right. So my whole life, they'd been like really important to me. And I think most kids like attached to like dogs and stuff but for whatever reason sharks are my favorite animal yeah. and so seeing these animals killed initially was like a super emotional experience but I think you also build once you've seen like I've seen probably seen like maybe around 150 hammerheads killed and they're like one of my favorite species of sharks and I think once you've seen so many deaths you almost get like immune to it hmm. it's kind of good to build up that emotional barrier because it means that you can get on with the science and you're not going to be like really sidetracked or anything like that with your emotions um, and if you are affected by it you can generally like hold it back and then deal with it later but it's also important to have that emotion connect emotional connection I think because it will be your driver for your work so for me like that check-in moment was in uh, the following year actually uh, I had to go out on the fisherman long line boat to count the number of hooks 
that they were using to work out fishing effort because obviously it's different if they've got like a two kilometer line that has like 200 hooks on but they're only collecting two sharks versus two hooks collecting two sharks and I took up the spot of a fisherman on the boat so I had to do a job and obviously I didn't they knew I wasn't gonna kill any sharks or anything like that so they gave me the bailing out job so I got given half a jerry can um the boat was shit it was like this tiny this tiny boat that leaked all the time and all the holes were plugged with like spare cloth Um, and yeah it was crazy so I was charged with bailing out so I was bailing out water like the whole way out to the long line and then on the way back in so we collected three hammerheads and the boat's really small right it's like a semi-industrial boat so it can't be longer than four meters like it's really really small Mm -hmm. and they pulled in these three hammers and it's a thin boat as well it's probably about two meters across so the sharks just go straight in the middle of the boat and you've got to put your feet on them and they chucked these three hammers in the middle and they one of them had just died it was very bloody and the water was coming in you know like when water and blood mix it just like Mm -hmm. multiplies and is everywhere so on the way back in, I was bailing out what felt like bailing out just blood out of the boat. And it was like really messed up. And I got back to shore and my researchers were there. And I just got back to shore and I was covered head to toe in blood. And I had that moment of like, this is why what we're doing is important. We need to stop this. This is crazy. So I think like, yeah, having those check-in moments as well is also really important to keep your drive. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, having that emotional purpose of of why you're doing what you're doing is important for the sustainability of your work i mean if you don't have that emotional driver maybe you'll do it for a year maybe you do it for two years but three four five like you might get sick of it but by having that you kind of can push through for a longer period of time but at the same time if you're dealing with these pretty emotional and traumatic experiences if you are just 100 percent emotional about it you'll just probably freeze. I mean, if I would probably freeze in that situation by not knowing what to do. So it's finding that balance of being emotional about the topic slash passionate about the topic, but then also taking a practical stance so that you can actually maximize the scientific impact of your work. Yeah, definitely. I think like if you're too emotional about it, it would just exhaust you. Yeah. And to be honest, a lot of scientists, especially in this day and age with like the way that the world is going without getting too morbid (laughs) Um, but the the number of major environmental problems that we're trying to solve but also facing as an entire generation Mm -hmm. I speak to a lot of scientists that get super bummed out so I think it's really important to like yeah be able to separate and I think a lot of scientists environmental scientists are good at that because you just have to be otherwise you just get overwhelmed yeah I mean it has to be part of your coping strategy because the things that you guys deal with on the front line I mean I guess my small part of what I'm doing with conservation is I'm like a communicator I'm linking like the scientists with the public I don't have that front line experience I'm not in that dinghy slash boat with a couple of hammerheads you know so it's a lot easier for me to say you just need to strike that balance but if you're right there I imagine it would be pretty bloody tough but another thing that you said about so the fish, the fishermen, do they understand that you're wanting them to like do less of what they're doing? Like, are they aware that you ultimately want them to stop doing what they're doing? And and how like if they are aware of that, like, is there any friction or is there any 
confrontation between uh, the two of you with them knowing that fact? How does that um, dynamic play out? Um, It's an interesting dynamic. Um, It depends on, say, it's a group of fishermen. We have a good relationship with the fishermen chiefs, which is essential to be able to do the work that we do. And we teach most of the fishermen's kids in the schools, marine resource management, uh, and that includes why shark fishing is bad. So they're kind of hit on multiple fronts in terms of the elders in the community. So you have community elders, which are basically like mayors in the community, and they part own our project and are super on board with what we do and just generally awesome human beings. And they uh, have actually started applying social pressure to stop shark fishing. So we've got like, and we do active workshops too. So they're being hit with like the education section. They're being hit by social pressure. Uh, The work that we're doing, we're trying to get finning outlawed as well. So eventually we want them hit by the legal pressure as well. But all of that's no good unless you can provide an alternate source of income because we live in a poverty stricken area. So people will continue just doing that work just illegally. So we are also working on the alternative livelihoods, but that's also why we haven't gone in as much as I would have loved for my love of sharks had gone in and been like, you can't do this anymore and you have to stop completely now. That's just not practical. So it's this, we built a long, we spent a long time building a relationship with them of trust. So not reporting them to police, even if it was an illegal catch, which is a really, really, really difficult line to walk um, and can be debated for years. Like, obviously, legally, we should be reporting them. But the moment you report them, you lose that trust and you won't be able to collect the data in the future. So it's about where you draw that line, because sure, the police will throw them in jail. But the moment they come back out, they'll continue doing that work. And the next time you won't be able to get there to be able to collect the data, to be able to stop it in the long run. Yeah, yeah. so that's, again, striking that balance between it. And it also varies human to human. So a lot of the fishermen get it, um, and we don't have a problem. Like, the chief shark fisherman's totally cool with us going and, you know, collecting samples and, like, counting sharks and stuff. But there are a couple of just... Yeah. I mean, but that's like, human nature, I guess. Like, yeah, exactly. No matter where you are, no matter what industry you're in, there's humans are just unique and different. <laughs> yeah. And some people respond well, and some people might there'll be a bit of friction. So this holistic approach, you've you've touched on, I guess, the strategies that you do for that and and the reason why you do it. But can you break that down again and explain love the oceans approach and philosophy for marine conservation? Yeah, definitely. Um, So our entire approach is about erasing barriers that stand in people's way um, to live more sustainably. And we live in a poverty stricken area. So like most houses don't have running water and electricity. Most people leave school around the age of 13 or 14. Literacy rates are about 50 percent, 75 percent in women. So you can't just and unemployment rates about 70 percent. So really high unemployment rate. Most people rely on subsistence farming, including fishing. So you can't just tell people that they can't do something for an income because they don't have any other options. They're not doing it because they really, really, really love killing sharks or anything like that. It's just because it's a source of income. So the moment you can provide an alternate source of income and reasons why not to do the primary one, they'll choose the other one. So for us, it's about educating people on the sustainability aspect because Mozambicans measure their wealth in the number of children that they have. So, um, and children are very, very important in society. So at the moment you kind of start talking about like, 
well, the way that you're fishing now means that future generations, like your kids and your kids' kids, won't be able to eat the way that you eat, um, see the animals that you see, all of that kind of stuff. Um, it changes people's mindset quite quickly. Um, so part of it's about that. Yeah, and then we have like the entire point of all of our data collection is to change legislation. So that's like the legal side of it. So we're working to get the marine protected area established, but the marine protected area will be locally managed because Mozambique doesn't have a lot of human resources to invest in guarding a marine protected area. So if you have a local community that can guard it themselves, manage it themselves, then that's going to be a much more successful approach. So it's a locally managed marine area that we're going after, which means you have to have a local community with a skill set to be able to manage it successfully, which is why we have all of our educational components that we do. So we do our swimming because people, with the creation of the marine protected area, we're kind of working to transition the community from unsustainable fishing through to uh, sustainable tourism, ecotourism. And the ecotourism is going to be things like diving, snorkeling, surfing, all of that kind of marine-based tourism because we're in a very idyllic spot with a great coastline. So people need to be able to swim to be able to take those jobs and be equipped with those skills. And most of our community, around 95% of people in our community can't swim. So um, teaching swimming is a big part of what we do. And then we also teach basic marine resource management, providing those skills and knowledge around marine conservation. For swimming, we work with four to 18 year olds. With teaching um, in the lessons, we work with 10 to 13 year olds. We also do uh, workshops with adults. And then we also have our alternative livelihoods plan, which is basically developing things like aquaponics and sustainable honey harvesting and increased uh, agriculture. There's a few others, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but basically these alternate sources of income that are sustainable that can supplement because basically there's going to be this lag time, right? There's going to be the establishment of the marine protected area but the tourism won't just immediately roll in and there'll be low seasons as well so people will still have to live and have a source of income so that's the alternative livelihoods trying to trying to plug that hole and like make it so that people can earn a living uh sustainably all year round mm -hmm. and manage that transition like like you said it's not going to be okay you're you're not doing this now and you're doing this tomorrow like it's if only it was that simple um, can, yeah, exactly. Can you please talk a bit about community conservation and the expand on some of the pros and cons of this type of work and strategy? So community conservation is crucial to what we do. And I think that any conservation strategy worth its salt will involve humans because humans are usually part of usually the cause of the environmental problem. So they need to be part of the solution. So for us, we have our educational components. We then also do like uh, training. So the we teach four to 18 year olds of swimming. When the kids get to around the age of 16, they progress into our advanced classes and our advanced students have the opportunity to become what we call an ocean conservation champion, which is basically when we sponsor them um, extra qualifications. So that can be English, English lessons, uh, swimming teacher, surf instructor diving all of those kind of marine industries because we work with a few different partners like the sta and stuff that sponsor those qualifications so yeah they basically get these opportunities to get other 
skills and qualifications which can get them jobs which helps alleviate poverty which means that people can live more sustainably poverty alleviation and successful conservation strategies go hand in hand in um, poorer countries because the example that I always use is if you've got a fisherman on a kayak and he doesn't know which fish are good to fish and which fish are bad to fish and he also doesn't have any source of alternate income. He might fish, let's say, a herbivore, something that's really crucial for reef health, a parrotfish. And he fishes it, and he doesn't know any better, and he doesn't have another option. So he's obviously going to keep that fish and feed his family with it, because he needs to. If the same dude has education around sustainability and reef health, and which fish are better to fish and which fish are worse to fish, and he also has an alternate source of income, so he's not relying on that fish to feed his family that day, he has the option, and we hope, that he would put that fish back in the water and fish another fish. So it's about this building this education component as well as other options. And then our ocean conservation champions, basically once they're qualified, they also run their own workshops. So it then becomes something Mozambicans are teaching Mozambicans. It's culturally integrated, which generally means that it will become more long term as well. Uh, and the each individual becomes an ambassador in the community for conservation. I mean, that, that makes sense, integrating the community. Like you said, it's an integral part for like a long lasting solution. If you can get a sense of purpose for these people to like be involved in solving the problem, I imagine that there would be more chance of them wanting to be involved. Like if it's just, you know, outsiders coming in trying to solve this problem, uh, there's like less reason or less incentive for them to kind of get involved. Like if you can try and empower them and feel like there's a sense of purpose in them to make a, a change, I feel like that would that's a, an important part of the process, it seems like. Yeah, definitely. It's a sense of ownership. So Ownership, that's um, the word. Yeah, so that's why we work with the elders and the community so closely. Um, so the elders part own the project and they are like 50% contributors. So they are a crucial part. And I think that's really important for any conservation strategy. If you're foreign, if you're not from that community, that you're taking on board and you're not making any assumptions about what a community's needs could be that you're working closely with the local community so that you actually know what's going on and you're pulling on that resource it's a resource it's a it's a it's knowledge the elders in this community know more about the culture and the people and the families than I will ever know so being able to pull on that resource and and understand any obstacles that could stand in their way. Obviously, we have very different life paths. So learning about what barriers might be there that I didn't know or couldn't think for myself might be there is really important. And I personally, I don't think that you can have a successful conservation strategy without it. That said, there is talking about like the community aspect versus community conservation versus other versions of it. Of conservation community conservation obviously takes longer because it requires an educational component and building that knowledge and building relationships it usually takes longer and it usually lasts longer too so for us it's about all this initial investment we have a five to ten year strategy i estimate that we'll have the mpa in the next few years but we will continue the educational component for a while before it will become a completely sustainable model. The idea is that Love the Oceans won't need to be here. But 
you also have different types of conservation. So you have things like fortress conservation, which is basically where an area is roped off and the local community is just kind of ejected um, and you get a lot of displacement uh, where basically humans just aren't cared for and they're just kicked out. And that can be really damaging socioeconomically, but it's also a quick way to fix the the environment because it then becomes like a no-go zone. So it recovers immediately, but you kind of screw over the humans and often they'll end up having to take part in unsustainable activities elsewhere to be able to make a living because they've been displaced and you're causing issues elsewhere. I guess it's like striking that balance. I mean, like like all these things, yeah. it's there is no one absolute solution it it is a balancing act just like everything just like everything in life so you're talking about breaking down these barriers as a big part of um, your mission for uh, love the oceans from your research and experience so far what are those main barriers and what are the the main challenges around i guess breaking them down the main barriers are financial more or less always comes back to poverty and not having those sources of incomes. And yeah, that's that's pretty much a repetitive thing that we see coming up. And that's as a result of being in a rural African community that's been typically steeped in like colonialism and oppressed and all of that kind of stuff for, for years and years. So yeah, I think a lot of it comes back to like the financial basis, which is where we kind of come in with the alternative livelihoods and trying to supplement incomes and yeah understanding that you can't just say this is bad you should change your ways so what are those alternative incomes i I know you mentioned ecotourism that's that's a big one that i'm i think is very important when done correctly have you found that there are other potential alternative sources of income for people in places like mozambique yeah, so the financial the financial stuff ties in with food security, right? So food security is a massive problem here. Crop yield isn't very high. Uh, we don't have great soil in terms of fertility, so it's quite difficult to grow a high yield of crops. So one of the areas we're looking at is increasing that crop yield to relieve the fishing pressure on the ocean because it is just about food security generally when we're not talking about the shark fishing um i mean just just general fishing um so increasing crop yield can increase obviously trade and also food security in the area so alleviating poverty again then you've got completely different alternate sources of income and the idea being that each kind of thing that we help with is a sustainable unit so it requires yeah an initial investment that love the oceans takes the responsibility of but ideally it's a sustainable unit so it can be continued without that financial investment going on. So that's things like aquaponics, which is basically a sustainable farming unit where you have like a tank of fish. Tilapia fish are like the the easiest species where we are. There's a farm not that far from where we are. And the fish poop and soil the water. And then the water, soiled water goes into a veg bed and the veg absorb that soiled water and reoxygenate it and that reoxygenated water goes back into the fish tank so it's like this sustainable unit the only thing that you need to put in is food obviously um and the units need to be maintained so they're maintained other like electricity and stuff like that all solar panels you also have to think about like when you come up with these ideas and this is where like the elders come in and the community comes in in terms of building these ideas thinking about 
the problems that you might encounter. So maintenance of them, um, electricity supply, getting the water, all of that kind of stuff needs to be thought through too. Then you also have like sustainable honey harvesting. So you have like the honey is one thing. Obviously, you can trade that and food security is increased as well. But then also you have all the kind of side products of that. So you have beeswax. So that's like candles and things like that that you can make too. So it's trying to come up with these, yeah, basically these methods that of income that are sustainable uh, that might require an initial investment. Usually it doesn't require that much money, but it could require an initial investment, but ultimately end up being a sustainable unit. Uh, and then it's about training people to be able to manage those um, if they want to and all the rest of it so that it can be, yeah, locally managed. Yeah, definitely an investment of, of time and energy. Um, so speaking of tourism, another form of tourism is volunteerism, which I only heard that term a yeah. couple of days ago. I think that's great. Is there an opportunity for people to volunteer and help um, with the work that you're doing at Love the Oceans? Yeah, so um, we basically... Uh, take trips at our base um, so we have we work with universities and those programs which is our, our five-week research programs they are, are like people that come out and help with data collection um, so they get training in the areas that we work in and it's science focused each university student usually usually studying like environmental science marine biology that kind of stuff and that's really key to our data collection and then we have other programs that are open to people that aren't studying a related science background, a kind of like a crash course in marine biology. And then there is a fee to participate, and that fee basically covers costs. So we rent accommodation and stuff here. So that covers like rent, and it covers uh, dive costs and all that kind of stuff, food, all of the like living expenses. And then the extra money, if there is any extra money, uh, is then plugged into our science projects and our community projects. So it's the way that we fund our work at the moment, uh, basically, which is really important for us. So yeah, people can get involved. And we have so many different programs. So we've got as we work with some really, really incredible partners, NGOs and charities as well. So we have our research programs for university students, we have our conservation adventure program for people who are not from a science background but want a crash course in marine biology so that's actually often popular with people looking at career changes and kind of toying with the idea of moving into the marine um, conservation world uh, then we also are partnered with a NGO called Photographers Without Borders um, which they run a workshop with us where they document our work which is great for us because we get all the photos and stuff that are generated during that but they are like amazing photographers national geographic like they've got crazy amazing talented people as part of their team uh, and they run a workshop which teaches people how to tell stories uh, using photos so yeah if you're interested in like photography and change making through media then they're definitely um, the program to go on then we're also partnered with a charity called swim taika and they basically bring out swimming instructors to help with our swimming initiative because during august it's winter here and there's a winter holiday uh, where all the kids are off from school for two weeks so we teach intensive swim lessons where we just get through as many kids as we can basically teaching them survival skills and yeah having more instructors obviously means that we can get through more kids because at the moment it's just me and pascal we're both swimming instructors but two people to get through like 72 kids a day is extremely long <laughs> days and very exhausting so more instructors means more children and then uh we have yeah we also have school groups that join us so under 18s they come out as part of their school and then we also have like 
random groups, travel groups that come through as well. So they can be anyone of any age, really. And they generally like pick a part of what we do and then get involved in that area. So the schools chose like plastics last year and that was what they wanted to do. So we did a lot of ocean trash research with them. Uh, But we do such an array of research. Sometimes people choose to like do a day of each or um, don't like focus on one area. So yeah, there's kind of something for everything. (laughs) Everyone, yeah. Plenty of options. All right, I've I've got a small question for you. And that small question is, what is your ultimate mission for Love the Oceans? The ultimate mission is to establish the marine protected area and then be able to remove ourselves from the area. So it's a sustainable unit. All righty. So in a nutshell, I love that that's the end goal is for there no longer to be a need for this project. Yeah. I love that idea because in having that as a mission, there's like a factor of selflessness there. Like I'm not doing this for me. I'm mm. doing this for someone else. Like you, you wouldn't see a company like you wouldn't, you'd never hear their mission being, yeah. I want to eventually no longer exist. I love that about yeah. conservation. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so these volunteering options, there's a lot of them. So people should check them out, but where can they check them out? How can people reach out to you and, and learn about your work and learn about how to connect with you online? So our website, lovetheoceans.org, that's got heaps of info on and it's also got a recent documentary that was made on our organisation by Photographers Without Borders. So you can watch that and learn about us there. Also our social media. So we've got Instagram at Love the Oceans, Facebook and Twitter. So any social media platform that you want. Uh, we're also on YouTube, um, just Love the Oceans on our YouTube channel and we've also had a recent documentary out. If you're interested in like the swimming aspect of what we do, we yeah had a recent documentary released uh, that's already actually won an award and is up for a second uh, featuring Pascal. So it's a case study on Pascal's, uh, our community outreach manager. It's a case study on his kind of journey um, through marine conservation and swimming and what that means to him. So it's quite poignant and it gives a lot of context to what we do. It's also beautifully shot. Matt Jarvis, the videographer for it, did an incredible job. So, yeah, you can also check that out. That's on our Instagram, uh, on our IGTV, on our Instagram. And then I think on his YouTube as well, Matt Jarvis YouTube. All righty. Okay, so they can reach out to you there. For the final segment of the podcast, what message do you want to leave the listeners of the Conservation Tribe? Mindfulness about your consumption, I would say. So... The problem in the world at the moment, almost every single environmental problem is a result of overconsumption of um, resources, whether that be the plastic problem or the biggest problem, which is obviously the climate crisis or overfishing or anything like that. That's all about overconsumption. So mindfulness about the way that you're living your life and taking steps to yeah live more sustainably. I think that's going to save us all in the long run. And we've all got to kind of club together and do our part. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.